You're listening to The Joe Martino Show, a podcast dealing with all things emotional, relational, and human nature. Joe is a licensed counselor in the state of Michigan specializing in relationship therapy. He is also the author of the book, The Emotionally Secure Couple. All advice offered in this episode is offered for entertainment and educational purposes only. Enjoy the show. All right. Hello. My name is Joe, and I am ready to go. I hated it when I was a kid and people would rhyme my name like that, but I actually kind of like it occasionally now as an adult. Maybe it's just proof I'm getting older. Uh, actually, I want to talk to you about something very serious today. Uh, I actually am recording this the day that this podcast is supposed to go up and moving the one that was set to go up today to next week uh, with Anthony Bourdain's suicide last week. The conversation about suicide at least for the moment, seems to have moved to the forefront here in America. Yesterday on my Facebook page, I put up a post uh, where someone stated that the reason people are committing suicide, the reason people are attempting suicide, is actually changing uh, at actually a pretty quick rate into some pretty strong numbers. So the article was in the USA Today, and the title is... Americans are depressed and suicidal because something is wrong with our culture. And it's written by uh, a columnist named Kirsten Powers who struggled with suicidal ideology and as near as I can tell from reading the article did not uh, attempt it, but almost did. Uh, but some, some scary statements in here. We also learned this week that suicide rates have risen by nearly 30% since 1999, making it a national crisis. 30% since 1999. One person told me that they've raised 15,000 suicides a year. That, that's how much they've gone up. Now, I couldn't find that source online, but the source that told me that is typically credible. Uh, some things to consider... 121 suicides per day. Men die by suicide three and a half times more often than women, although women attempt suicide twice as often as men. And so these statistics are running around us all the time, and there are people who are never going to be on a TV show. There are people who are never going to design a purse or a bag or whatever the correct term is for that who have committed suicide or are sitting and thinking about committing suicide right now today. And and we need to talk about it. One of the things that I said on my article yesterday was that I'd love for us all to have conversations that help save lives. And a friend of mine said, well, I'd love to have these conversations. How do we help our society to make a shift? I think there are a couple ways to answer that question. And I think that at least one of the ways that we definitively have to answer that question is, is we have to stop looking at mental illness as the same type of physical illness as a cold or the flu or a broken bone. In other words, if you get the flu, they give you medicine and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but the flu goes away in three or four days. If you have a broken bone, they set it, they put it in a cast and it heals. If you get a bacteria infection, they give you antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera. Mental illness, there's a lot we don't know about the brain. 
And I'm telling you, hear me on this, our drugs that we prescribe for mental illness are not as hard science as big pharma and as a lot of therapists want you to think that they are. They're just not. And so we need to make that shift. First of all, person with mental illness, a person contemplating suicide. First of all, one of the things that that article points out that I was talking to you about is that a lot of people attempting suicide today, they wouldn't meet the criteria for mental illness. Now, there's a little bit of a, I have to be honest, my professional dander went a little sideways there. I always get a little nervous when journalists start talking like experts in a field that they're not. Because by definition, once they attempted suicide, that would be criterion for mental illness. But she does make a good point that we're going to get to here in a minute. That a lot of the people who are contemplating suicide, it's because we live our lives just backwards in this world. We are living disconnected from people. We are living disconnected from our spouses. We are chasing things. We are chasing things that do not satisfy we're chasing money and status and position. And we're not chasing intimacy. Last night, my wife went to a supervision group uh, that she goes to regularly as part of her licensure requirements uh, in this field. And as she was there, the supervisor presented them with a handout that talks about how many close intimate friends the average person has. On the closest most circle is one and a half people on average. Obviously, nobody has a half a friend. So some people have two, some people have none. But one person that they're truly intimate with, that they can truly tell everything to. The next circle, there's about five people, and then everybody else is kind of out there 15 and beyond. But we don't, by and large, chase the idea of connection. Because connection requires real vulnerability. And one of the things in our society is we don't get do vulnerability, period. We don't. Because if we do, somebody's going to judge us. Just this morning on Facebook, a friend of mine put up a post, and I'm, I'm certain this guy likes me. I like him. He put up a post uh, that was very kind of point blank, and I didn't see the point of it, and I almost typed, I don't understand why is this bad? And then I saw that someone else already had. And that person got destroyed. Right? So there's no vulnerability there. There's no connection. Connection requires hard work. It requires engaging in pain. And in our society, we worship at the altar of pain-free, especially emotionally. And so one of the things that we have to consider is that there are people committing suicide because they're literally achieving everything that we believe they can achieve. And they're not fulfilled. In fact, one of the things that the author of that article talks about that I've seen again and again and again and again is her own psychiatrist downplayed her uh, expressions to them that she was contemplating suicide because she had such a great life, quote, end quote. I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but one of the problems is we're not looking at the right factors for what puts people at risk. We're looking at the externals of their life, and those aren't the, that isn't the right criteria to measure whether or not they're at risk for suicide. So one of the first ways to answer my friend's question about how do we make a shift in the conversation about suicide is 
is we stop looking at accomplishments as the only way to meaning. Meaning and attachment go together. And if we don't have meaningful relationships, the things that we do aren't going to be enough to satisfy our soul. They're not going to be enough to give us life-sustaining meaning. Now, there are people who have fantastic families. There are people that have fantastic uh, support networks. They have fantastic spouses. They have awesome children, and they still commit suicide. So I'm not saying that the only reason people commit suicide is because they don't have attachment, because obviously that's not true. But I do think we have to consider the meaning piece, and we have to consider the attachment piece, and we have to consider the mental illness piece. One of the reasons that was stated in a different article that I read was uh, that debt, that uh, you know, people just tracing, quote, the American dream is one of the reasons, because once they achieve it, there's nothing left, and they're not satisfied. And so they're trying to find uh, um, satisfaction in these things that they do. I read an article about a guy who was a, a, a sports coach. And he was really good, and he was loved, and he had an amazing wife. I never met her, but I mean everybody in the article. And he committed suicide in the shed on one of his fields because, at least in his note that he left behind, because he didn't have meaning. He just didn't see the point. He had, he had achieved everything that he thought he would achieve. And once he got it all, it was meaningless. There was once a guy who, who wrote a, a book in antiquity, and he talked about how he, he, he didn't keep anything from his soul, and it was all meaningless. And I think that is something that we're not talking about in our society. We're not talking about the fact that what we're doing in society is, is A, we're disconnecting from people, and B, we're chasing meaning that isn't actually satisfying. I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, uh, this issue of attachment. Um, my wife and I talk a lot about how we have each other, and, and then we have one or two or three people that orbit closer to that. But then by and large, we don't go out with people a lot. We don't do a lot of things with other people. And... and she was talking to a mentor of ours about it. And, and the reality is you only have so many hours in a day. So we've got businesses to run and I've got this podcast to record and I'm working on rebooting my YouTube channel. We're trying to market the book. I'm working on a second book. She's doing all of the business side of our, of our businesses. And we're running these things down. And, and by, by making sure that we are I'm able to focus on these things... I have to say no to other people and other things. One of the things that often happens in our society is we don't want to say no to anybody, so we end up doing a little bit of everything, and we never really get connected. We never really find people that we bond with on a soul level. And then our friendships don't survive certain crisis points. And so we stop at some point trying to be vulnerable to other people. Not everybody. I'm sure there are people listening to this who that doesn't describe. But, but there are a lot of people that that's true of, that, that, that they have chased friendship, that they have chased meaning through things that don't satisfy, and then someone hurt them, so they withdraw from the friendship. And they stop chasing friends. 
um, actually what started this conversation was I got deleted on Facebook by a former friend of mine who uh, doesn't live near me anymore, uh, but he's getting separated, divorced, I don't know. And one of the things that my wife lamented to me was one of the unexpected side effects of being a counselor is when your friends go through a divorce or a separation, they tend to uh, ghost you. <laughs> they disappear. They delete you off Facebook. Uh, don't return your calls. Don't return your texts. Usually until things settle. Uh, and then one of them typically adds you back. Uh, and she just, that wasn't something she was expecting. And I guess I'm become a little bit cynical towards it because I've, I've just been doing this long enough that I've had it happen. And, and so what brought this conversation was at one time, you know, he, he used to say we're brothers and we don't talk anymore and in part because we don't agree politically. Right. And, you know, and it's just an awkward conversation because there isn't a lot of conversation. Now, don't get me wrong. I have friends that I disagree with politically and, and we have great conversations. But how do you run these out? If, if you can't endure pain, you won't have deep friendships. And if you don't have deep friendships, you won't have deep meaning. And if you don't have deep meaning, you're at a higher risk for suicide. Right? Suicide isn't just a bacteria cold. It's actually probably more a product of your habits of thinking than it is any chemical in your brain. And I know if there is any psychiatrist listening to this, they're flipping out right now. That's okay. I remember one time I was talking to a client and I was coordinating care with uh, his uh, PCP and the PCP told me that they had uh, prescribed, you know, X medicine. And I was like, well, can I ask why? Um, and they were like, well, it worked for me, quote, end quote. That's terrible reasoning to make a, a prescription. And this brings me to my second point. One of the things that we need to do is we need to recognize that there is inherent dangers to some of the medicines we have. There was one medicine that we were putting kids on it for anxiety. They were killing themselves and nobody wanted to admit it until finally people start just flipping tables, not literally, to, to, to get the attention. And finally people were like, okay, yeah, this drug isn't good for teenagers. We have to look at the medicines. How many people committing suicides are on SSRIs? There's research out there. Look it up. We have to look at how we're utilizing those meds. We have to realize that medicine may not help a lot of people over the long term. Great short-term stuff. Great medium-term stuff. But there are side effects. And some medicine that might help this person might not help that person. And we've got to do a better job of coordinating care on that side of it. Right? One of the conversations that we've got to start having is what are we doing with our medicines when it comes to how we treat these things? There are so many people that they don't, they don't, that they, they want to go straight to the medicine. Isn't there a pill I can take for this? Maybe, maybe, but maybe not. And that's something you have to consider. What The medicine that worked for your neighbor might put you at a higher risk for suicide. And have frank conversations with your doctor. I'm telling you, I know a lot of doctors, and so many of them are under so much pressure from the insurance companies or from their mothership to get people through as quickly as they can. 
Well, if, if you saw six people that hour, can you get seven through next hour? If you saw seven people that hour, can you see eight people this next hour? It is a money-making machine. And, and I'm not against people making money, but, but you've got to be your own advocate there. If you have a loved one that's at risk, that's on these meds, if they'll sign the HIPAA paperwork, you be an advocate for them. We need to look at the meds. We need to look at how we're, how we're crafting our lives. We need to look at how we're chasing meaning and attachment. And we need to look at the meds. We need to look at how we treat this medicine across the board. Right? I can't tell you as a counselor how hard it is to get somebody in to see a psychiatrist. One of the things that is truth is if we only look at this as a mental illness, there's some sort of chemical imbalance in your head. We're cutting out a large swath of people who actually have issues related to, I don't know what to do to get meaning, and my loss of meaning is deep despair. One of my, I have five rules that I, that I try to preach to my kids all the time. And, and the fifth one is, is if your life is going to have meaning, it has to be about more than you. If your life is going to have meaning, it has to be about more than you. And here's what's happened. And this is why points one and two run hand in hand. We've taken that and we've said, no, no, no. If your life's going to have meaning, it has to be all about you. And anything that's wrong with your life, we can fix with a pill. That's hogwash, my friends. That is straight up hogwash. On both levels. Now, don't get me wrong. Look, I've said to clients, I can't, it's outside the scope and sequence of my license to prescribe medicine, but I've said to clients, hey, we really need to figure out a way to coordinate some care for you to get to a psychiatrist or to your PCP so that we can talk about some anti-anxiety meds, so that we can talk about some anti-depression meds. And, and I've even had clients push back on me and I said, no, I, I think we've been going at this for a while now and we need... We need to bring in this other piece of care. I'm not anti-medicine. What I am is I'm anti, that's the only thing. And so as we chase out, how do we help people who are at risk for suicide? One of the ways we help them is we have to, as a society, evolve past our narcissistic self-obsession with this idea that we can create some artificial hoogabaloo that will somehow help People who are in true despair. And if you're a pro-Mary Jane person that that solves all depression and anxiety problems, you're just as bad as Big Pharma. It just as bad. In fact, a lot of studies show that people who regularly use marijuana are at a higher risk of depression and anxiety than people who don't. Because here's the thing. Once the high wears off, you still got your life to deal with. It's still there and it's not being dealt with. So don't come at me with that garbage either. I'm sorry. This is just something. People are dying and we're pushing agendas. It just frustrates me. I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to step back and look at the overall perspective of medicine. How does medicine help a person? What risk does it create? And really look at that side of it. Like, I mean, you buy a medicine. I was talking to somebody yesterday. Their doctor was changing their medicine. And I said, well, what are the side effects of that? And they're like, I don't know. All the side effects read the same. It's this minuscule print that goes on for pages. And, you know, if you go to your doctor and you're like, hey, this is going on. Okay, well, that's potentially one of the side effects. Because pretty much 
everything from gas to your right foot could fall off. That's an exaggeration. Is a potential side effect. Okay, so so I just want to say this one more time. A couple things that I think we need to do. We need to change the conversation about life in general and how we craft meaning and attachment. What are we teaching our kids to chase? Think about it. You go to school to get good grades so that you can go to college to get a good education so that you can go get a good job so that you can go buy a good house in a good neighborhood. Blah, 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 blah. And people are achieving those things and it isn't working. They're not finding satisfaction. Instead, they're finding despair. We need to look at our medicines. We need to look at how we're prescribing them, how we're treating them. We need to look at our relationship to medicine. How do we view medicine in our life? We need to look at how we view therapy. We need to do things to kill the stigma related to therapy. It does not mean you're weak when you go to therapy. People that I love are in therapy. And sometimes I'll tell people, they're like, what? Yeah, yeah, they're in therapy. It's okay. Really? I I had a a professor when I was in graduate school who said that she thought no counselor should be in the field and not go to therapy. A friend of mine just stood up in front of about 1,200 people this weekend and talked about how he and his wife go to therapy. People need therapy, and it's okay. But the thing of it is, what what ought to scare us about that is, most of the time, uh, what works in therapy is the relationship that the client has with the therapist. It all comes back to that. Everything comes back to that. Now, the danger in a podcast like this is if you're listening and someone you love committed suicide, you could think he's blaming me. I want to be really clear on this. No, I am not. It's not your fault. Survivor's guilt is real. It exists and it's not your fault. The fact that your husband, your wife, your daughter, your son, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your best friend, your parent, whoever it was, committed suicide, it's not your fault. You didn't do it. Unfortunately, they did. There was nothing you were going to do to stop it. You have to find a way to live your life with the wound that is them being gone. And I know that's hard, but you have to do it. It's not your fault. So I want to take a minute and I want to talk to those people who have, who have lost a loved one. It isn't your fault. Unfortunately, we live in a broken world. Part of the mission that my wife and I exist for is to change the world, one person, one couple, one family at a time. And we do this by helping people get emotionally healthy, mentally healthy. If you're listening to this and you're contemplating suicide, please don't. Call my office, 616-481-3784. I don't care if you live in the state of Michigan or not. If you don't live in the state of Michigan, we won't be able to help you uh, as far as getting you in, but we will help you get the number to the suicide prevention line. If you're thinking about suicide, please don't do it. There are people in your life that love you. I don't even know you, and I promise you there are people in your life that love you. They want you to live. If you're thinking about committing suicide because you want the pain to stop, there are other ways for it to stop. Please, please, please hear that. I have so many friends who have had loved ones who have committed suicide, and they all say the same thing how much they miss them, how much they want them back. I've not had anyone close to me commit suicide. My mom passed 
uh, 16 years ago this month. Her birthday was last week. And the pain of that, some days it's overwhelming and it's been 16 years. If she had committed suicide, I don't know how that changes that pain. But I know that the loss of a loved one through death is permanent and irrevocable, at least at least on this side of, of, of eternity. And so if you're listening to this today and you are contemplating suicide, please don't do it. I'm begging you. Please don't do it. All right, I want to end with a quote from the article that I was reading earlier that I was like, this is just, this is it. This is what I'm talking about. So, so here it is. It's, uh, I'll just pick it up. In an interview this year, the comedian actor Jim Carrey talked about getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and realizing you are still unhappy and that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you have accomplished everything you ever dreamed of and more. If only we get that big raise or a new house or have children, we will finally be happy. But we won't. In fact, as Carrie points out, in many ways, achieving all your goals provides the opposite of fulfillment. It lays bare the truth that there is nothing you can purchase, possess, or achieve that will make you feel fulfilled over the long term. Rather than pathologizing the despair and emotional suffering that is rational response that is a rational response to a culture that values people based on ever escalating financial and personal achievements, we should acknowledge that something is very wrong. We should stop telling people who yearn for a deeper meaning in life that they have an illness or need therapy. Instead, we need to help people craft lives that are more meaningful and built on firmer foundation than personal success. Yes, there are people who have chemical imbalances who should be supported and treated with medicine. But most Americans are depressed, anxious, or suicidal because something is wrong with our culture, not because something is wrong with them. Changing our culture is critical. Being honest with others about our own personal struggles and dark nights of the soul is the first step. There are more people committed to the, contemplating committing suicide because they don't see any hope in the future to actually have fulfillment than we'd ever like to admit. If we truly want to change the conversation, we have to start there. I call on people to talk about things that create meaning. And this starts all the way in high school. I'm going to hit my favorite hobby horse, and I've got nothing against it. I really don't. But think about how we treat sports. Think about high school students. If you can achieve, if you can excel, you get the glory, or you get made-up awards that nobody actually cares about. What they actually want, they being the students, is somebody to sit and listen to them, sit and connect with them. We have to start with connection. I'm telling you, that's where it starts. Then we have to look at the medicines. And then like that quote, we have to help people craft lives that have meaning. We have to, we have to, have to, have to do this. You can do it one step at a time in your own life. If you don't feel that your life has meaning, find some places to connect. Call a local counselor. Go to a spiritual place of worship and start talking about that. Move forward in your direction. Write me, info at joemartino.com, info at joemartino.com, or go to joemartino.com and click contact me page. You can find meaning. I'm telling you, I love my life and I find a lot of fulfillment in it. And yes, part of that is what I do. I get to help people. But a lot of that is the deep relationship I have with my wife, with my children, and one or two friends. That's what, that's what it does. I've also had a lot of pain in my life. There was a time many, many years ago where I was thinking, oh, maybe I should commit suicide. Now, I was young and dumb and not very emotionally intelligent.
And by not very emotionally intelligent, probably not at all. And I would have missed out on so much. A lot of hard work and a lot of fulfillment. Please, I'm begging you. If you're thinking about suicide and you're listening to this, don't do it. Okay, so that is today's episode. It is a little long, a little rambling. Normally I write out a much cleaner script. Suicide is literally tearing at our society. It is destroying homes and families and ripping hearts out of loved ones. We need to have more conversations about it. And I invite you to join that conversation. Like I said, write me, info at joemartino.com, I-N-F-O at joemartino.com, or joemartino.com, click on the contact me page. Till next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with a friend. Give us a rating on the iTunes store. And if you have a question for a future show, feel free to send us an email at info at joemartino.com. You can also go to joemartino.com and click on the Contact Me page. Until next time, remember, change possible.